Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We're going to learn, we're going to learn Torah because uh, as when all this started, I told you that one of our teachers said, I know it's hard. I know you're distracted. I know you're exhausted, but it's important to ground ourselves by studying Torah. And um, he, he was brilliant in saying, you don't have to study something new. If it takes too much energy, you can do what's called Hazara, which is a, a return. Like you can review, so review some material you've already learned, right? So the good news is we've learned this Parsha before, once or twice, right? So we know where we are. We're going to orient ourselves to where we are in the Torah, but we're going to focus on a part, actually, it's not Hazara, Um we're gonna we're gonna focus on a part that I usually skip over. Even if I'm reading on the triennial, and you know I used to read religiously on the triennial until last year, so that it kept me honest about addressing every part of Torah, not just going with the ones that are easy to to lidrosh, to talk about, right? And and skip to the interesting stuff and skip the stuff that isn't. But even in the triennial reading, I always skip this this part. So oddly, I was drawn to it, and I've learned to just trust that little voice that says. Dig in, dig in there. Like, why? I don't know. Okay. So I decided I'll, I'll dig in. And if I don't find anything, I'll move on, right, to, to more obvious stuff to interpret. All right. So that's to explain why we're going to dig in where we're going to dig in. We, so we're at Lech Lecha. We're at this call to Avraham. We're at this call to, uh, to Abraham, to Avram and Sarai to leave um, everything they know, every place every part of their life that they know where they the country they've been in the region they've been in the language they've been in the family they've been in and it says that in the text you know Eretz Moldatecha the place that you were born Beit Avicha your your home like your meaning your ancestral home so on all these levels Avram is called to leave and we're not going to focus there that's why I haven't given you a page um so Avram is called to leave and, and you know, you have to wonder about the stuff that's not on the page. Like, what is the conversation between Avram and Sarai? Like, what what's that I'm conversation? Again? <laughs> like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? Who told you we need to go? Right. The invisible, yud hey vav hey unpronounceable. You can't even tell me the name. Yubahah told you. You need to, but you, right. So a God we've never heard of in Mesopotamia, right, has spoken to you and told you we need to pick up everything and go somewhere. Where are we going again? Where's Avram told he's going? Yeah. To the place that we have, uh, <laughs> we'll show you. At All our right. age? <laughs> At our age, right? So, right, it, it, it's interesting that it's not there because it's kind of a big conversation. Right, that you imagine what happened in a clan um, about picking up and moving and going. You don't know where you're going in a time and in a region where it's very dangerous to not have connections. It's incredibly dangerous not to have people who have your back. As we see, he's going to go to war in this parsha, Avram. So, um, so it's already kind of an interesting thing that we have no material on what that process, what that conversation is. But Avram accepts and, and goes. And we know that he goes to Canaan. He goes to the land of Canaan. Uh, and um, so we have several scenes that happen in this Parsha. It's kind of a loaded Parsha in terms of what happens for Avram. He builds in this, in this journey. He winds up building five altars. So I read an interesting study on each of those altars and what might each of those stops mean and, um, and what's happening for him. How do those altars represent kind of the journey that Avram and Sarai are on. Um, so we have that. And then we have, he he goes to war against five kings uh, in the region. So we have Avram, the warrior that we don't talk about a lot. Avram in the mystical tradition, in our spiritual tradition, is associated with chesed, with love. Avram is the embodiment of chesed for the rabbis. Um, and so it's it's interesting that we also have Avram as Ishmael Chama, the, the man of war, right? And he's successful. So that also tells you something about how many people he has with him. He's he's pretty wealthy. He's a sheikh, right? You know, he's he's very wealthy. Um, he's got a lot of people, so he's not exactly powerless, but he's also not 
associated with a bunch of clans, you know, that could pull together and come against him either. All right. So so that's kind of where we're at with him early in the land of Canaan and what's going on with his relationships there. And he's been promised, you'll recall, he's been promised progeny. He's been promised seed, right? That means issue of his body. When it talks about Zerah, it talks about issue of someone's body. This means not an adopted heir. He's He's been promised, but he's old. Sarai is old. So it looks like that's not going to happen. He's he's battled. He's trusted. He's gone. He's there. And now, and now he reaches this moment of really to God. And that's the moment that we're going to look at. That That's the thing that we're going to look at is this very interesting, bizarre scene um, where Avram starts to say, really? Um, and we can give it, we're going to look at the tone and tenor of, of what that looks like. Okay, so let's go to the text. We're going to go to 15.1. This seems to, so this makes, this achar hadavarim ha'ela, after, after these things, after these events, means we're getting a scene that's set off from that. We don't know if it's six months later, two weeks later, the next morning, 20 years, 20 years later. We, we don't really know, but it tells us that this is another now we're in another thing. Another thing's happening. Another thing's going on. It's it's not so connected to whatever just happened. Not that what just happened didn't happen and influence, you know, who he becomes or whatever. But it's like, this is not totally related to what just happened. So we get the separate kind of set off scene. After these things, comes the word of God to Avram, right? And his name is still Avram. And... Here, here comes the words of God. So first of all, we could ask, why? Why is God all of a sudden talking to Abra? Right? Like, what? why now? Why now? So then you have to look to what God says to maybe understand why God's talking right now. God says, Altira Avram. Don't be afraid, Avram. Avram's just been victorious in a war. So it's like, uh, okay, thanks. <laughs> thanks for that. So don't be afraid, Avram. Anochi magen lach. I am a magen for you. I am a shield for you. Tzcharcha harbe me'od. Your reward is exceedingly great, is abundantly great. What is Avram supposed to say to that, right? So don't be afraid. I'm your shield, and you have this amazing reward. Avram still doesn't have a child. So what reward exactly are we talking about? I'm already wealthy. I already just proved I can take care of myself. Thank you very much. And so now you're telling me my reward is great. God's talking to it. And Avram says, Mati Tenli, what will you give me? Meaning, how many more bedrooms do I need in my place? Since I have no children to put in them. Right? How, how, how much fancier a car do I need? What what are you gonna give me, my my lord Yudhe Buffet? What would you give me? For I'm going to die cursed, and the son domestic of my house is Damascus Eliezer, meaning my heir is the son of my most favored servant, meaning he's going to adopt Eliezer's child as his heir. This was very common. Those of you who've been learning together here for a while know this. It's very common in the ancient Near East. You don't have issue of your own body. You adopt an heir, right? So if I didn't have Eliana, I would adopt my nephew. Don't tell him. Don't tell him, right? So that so that you you take someone close to you, you adopt them as your heir, and, and they inherit. There's lots of contracts that have survived that tell us, and the, and the contract says, but if I should have issue of my own body, now I'm setting aside that person. This is what Sarah did. This is what Sarah did. She, she broke that arrangement because there was issue of her body, right? Okay. Um, but he doesn't want this. He doesn't want to adopt. He's adopted this person as his heir, and that's not what he wants. So you're going to reward me? Really? Well, how about rewarding me with what you promised me, which is the most important thing to me right now? And Abram said, here, to me, you have not given seed. Here, the son of my house must be my heir. 
But here, Yudhei word came to him saying, this one shall not be heir to you. Rather, the one that goes out from your body, he shall be heir to you. He brought him outside. So God brings Avram outside and says, so we don't know where Avram was. We assume maybe he was in his tent, sleeping, right? Because look at the stars means it's not noon, right? So presumably if he's inside, he's in his tent. Presumably you look at the stars means it's nighttime. So maybe he awakes from a vision, right? From a dream where he hears this. We, we're not told. God brings him outside and says, Look toward the heavens and count the stars. Are you able to count them? And he said to him, so shall your seed be. And Avram had faith. He believed and he deemed it as righteous merit on his part. This is a tangled translation of tangled Hebrew. Um, he sees it as staka. We think of staka as charity. But here it seems to be something about Sedek, righteous, like he's earned this from God for having been righteous, you know, in following and trusting God. We're not sure. It's just, it's a hard thing to translate. By Yomeri love. And he said to him, again, remember how when you're dealing with God talking and stuff, it's often confusing who's talking to whom, right? He said to him and he answered and he said, and he said, and, he, and we don't know who it is. Because the, the author is not stupid. The author is not unaware that's confusing. The author is trying to communicate through making it kind of tangled that this is not a normal interaction. This is not at the bus stop. Charlie says to, you know, Linda, how's it going? Linda said, I'm fine. Charlie said, how are the kids? Right? Linda said, oi. <laughs> right? So this this is not that. And so it's it's crafted to be kind of confusing. So he says to him, how do we know who's talking? Not until the next line. Ani Adonai, right? I am Yodhevavheg, who brought you out of Or of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess it. So now we can imagine, what is God's tone here, right? You know what they say when you're writing a text, never read tone into text or email? I do it all the time. Like, right? so um, all the time, all the time. I have to take deep breaths all the time before I respond. So, um <laughs> So, like, what is God's tone here, right? So, look at the stars, count them, right? So shall your seed be. How does God know that Avram trusted? God must know Avram's heart because Avram doesn't say anything, right? And so then God says, look. I mean, here's, here's my interpretation, right? One of them, anyway. Look, I'm the one who brought you out of Earth and Chaldees to bring you to this land to possess it. Right. Like uh, you're talking to God here. Like, do you think I can't make this happen? But what proof does Avram have really of anything? So maybe God's saying, look, I'm the one who called you out here. I brought you out here. I'm not going to leave you here without what I promised. Right? So we can imagine all kinds of ways that this conversation is unfolding. Avram in true Avram tradition. Vayomer. But he said, Adonai Elohim, you know, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? Meaning, I, you haven't given me a lot of, you haven't given me a lot to work with. I've trusted you. We're here. We've done everything we're supposed to do. You keep promising. Ain't a lot of evidence, right, that, that this is actually going to happen. And he said to him, a very odd answer. God answers, fetch me a calf of three, meaning age three, a goat of three, a ram of three, a turtle dove, and a fledgling. Okay. That's God's answer to how will I know, right? Like I'm just... Avram's trying really hard. He wants to believe. He wants to trust. He wants this to be so. He wants it to be true. He's starting to get nudgy, right? He's starting to, to really worry that this, yeah, he just needs more assurance. So God's answer is great. Bring me a three-year-old calf, a three-year-old goat, a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove that's just learning to fly. Okay. Um, and he fetched all of these. And have them down the middle. 
who halved it down the middle? Right? So this is, this is an interesting question. There's no instruction to Avram to cut it up. Did God cut him up? Don't know. This was very common. We've talked about this before. When you talk about a covenant, what's the word used in Hebrew, the verb that you do with a covenant? Korait brit. You cut a covenant. You don't make a covenant. You don't sign a covenant. You cut a covenant. You cut a deal. You cut a deal. Comes from this. It comes from here. You cut an animal in two over and you you recite the terms of the covenant and then each party passes through the pieces so that what you're saying is should either one of us break this deal this should be our fate right and then of course i don't know if you ate the animal i would like to think you did like that you didn't just waste it um but um but that's the point is that you you it's probably a very, very, very old tradition, right? Predating Israel for sure. Um, so, so they're cut down the middle and put eat and and put each one's half toward its neighbor. But the birds he did not have, right? Um, wait, what I wanted to go to. There are some who want to say that this is a vision. That it's the middle of the night. Abraham hears God's voice and hears this conversation unfold and then sees this scene. There, there are folks who are very uncomfortable with what's going on right now. It feels very pagan, right? It feels very, feels very not so Jewish. <laughs> so even though we have it other places, the walking through the, it just feels very odd, right? That God and Abraham are cutting up animals and like having this conversation. So. There are folks who want to say this is a vision um, that he has that's symbolic, right? All of this is symbolic. So, so vultures descended on the carcasses, but Avram drove them off. So you can see why this might seem like a vision, right? So here's all this drama, this bloody drama with these animals, with four. There's three animals cut in half. The fledgling is not. It's left intact. And then all these birds of prey come down, right? That's pretty scary. If you know birds of prey, they're pretty big. Think about Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds. Like, we don't think of them as so scary because we don't usually see this happening, that they're coming in for literally the kill. Like, they're coming in to take the kill. So they're coming in, talons out, right? Screeching. Yeah, we saw the vultures come in and for the, the, the remains of what the other animals didn't eat. It's really scary, right? And they're they're big and they're mean and they're and they're fighting each other to get meat, right? So they're 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 ready to fight. They're pissed off. I'm sorry. They're they're in competition with each other. So and so Avram has to. This is his ritual stuff. He's dealing with God. This is their thing. So he's gotta he's gotta drive them off. Now it was when the sun was coming up that deep slumber falls on Avram. So if this was a vision he had in this kind of semi-awake, semi-asleep state, right? He goes completely to sleep. If we're to take the text at face value, he walks out of the tent, he's awake. This whole thing happens. Now God puts on him a man, which is a very heavy, you know, and he get, God gives um, uh, him anesthesia, right? Like I'm putting you out. I'm putting you under. So a very deep slumber fell on Avram. And here, a fright and a great darkness, right, falling on him. So he might feel all the room spinning. And all of a sudden, if you've ever fainted, you know, the, the just it, it go, if he can feel it, that, that it's, the room's going dark. That's terrifying. You know you're losing control, right? Um, so it, it's frightening, right? All right. And he says to Avram, no, yadoa teda. No, for sure. Kiger yye zaracha. Your seed will be strangers. Be'eretz lolahem. In a land that's not theirs. Ba'avadum. Right? And they will be enslaved. Ve'inu. And they will be oppressed. They will suffer. Right, they will they will be oppressed. The Inu Ota, 
they will oppress them. Four hundred years. I should hold the question, but I, I just kind of can't. Like, how comforting do you think this is? Robin shaking her head. Not so much. God. But the nation to which they are in servitude, Dan Anochi, I will judge. And after that, after I'm done judging, they will go out with great property. And as for you, but for, I would say, but, well, as I guess means, but, so, but you, you're going to come to your ancestors, Bishalom, in peace. Meaning you're going to die without having seen any of this. This is not going to happen to you. This is going to happen to your grandchildren, great-grandchildren, whatever. And you will be buried, Bishalom, at a very good old age. I don't know about y'all. I would rather it happen to me than to Eliana. Anything that's bad, I would rather have happen to me than to her, right? However sad and horrible something happening to ourselves is, and it is, I'm not saying it's not, I'm not minimizing that. Watching, knowing your child is going to suffer and there's nothing you can do about it. There is nothing worse because you're helpless, right? So think about what Avram is hearing. You're going to be fine. But for 400 years, your offspring are going to be enslaved and they're going to suffer in a land that's not theirs. Remember in the ancient world, if you're in a land not yours and you're suffering, it's... I don't understand how this is God's reward. I, I, I go back to God saying that I'm going to reward you. Exactly. So let's... I'm so glad you asked that. So that's why I found this this year like fascinating. Given where we are right now, I just can't read Torah right now without thinking about where we are. I just can't teach it as a distraction from what's going on. I just can't. I'm just constitutionally somehow unable. So to me, it was just like, right, they're going to be in a place that's not theirs, and they're going to suffer terribly. So all I could think of, you know, was our 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 diaspora experience of being chased from one place to another, and here we are this morning. You know, someone sent me a text that on UCLA's campus. There's a huge graffiti that says, you you can't run, you can't hide, we want Jewish genocide. Oh. This was on my daughter's college campus. I can't. Okay, we'll talk. Let's get through the text. Um, yeah, but it's even more precise description of turn and slavery. Yes. Years, exactly. Yes. So, so folks who are from, you know, the Christian tradition, I'm sure can look at this and, yeah. and read it that way. This, for us, is talking about the Jewish people because it's Avram and the covenant between God and Avram. So for us, it's about the Jewish people and us studying it is about the Jewish people, but for sure, other peoples could read their story into this as well. But in the fourth generation, they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorite has not reached full measure on Hena until now. What meaning yet? So to your point, Betsy, that's where people focus on, it's going to be bad, but in four generations, in 400 years, like they will come back here. Okay, so we're going to, we're going to look at it. Now, it was when the sun... Huh? Generation is not 100 years. Oh. At least in my impression, it's 20 minutes. Yeah. So, Vador Revi'i. So it just says uh, the fourth generation. That makes sense, right? Because, like, beginning with Abraham, like, Abraham to Joseph is four generations, and then it starts. Isn't that what it's saying? Or that the, uh, uh, the uh, time of enslavement will last four generations. But in the fourth generation, they'll return here. That means after suffering oppression in Egypt. Right? And they're slaves 400 years in Egypt. So he's saying, if a generation is 20 years, that math doesn't work. Yeah, totally. So, and, so I, I honestly don't know. I didn't spend a lot of time looking there. So I'm, we'd have to look. I'm sure Safaria has what to say um, if we look there. Um, now it was when the sun had come in that there was night blackness. And here, a smoking oven, a fiery torch that crossed between those pieces. Very bizarre. On that day, 
cut a covenant with Avram, saying, I give this land to your seed from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite, the Kenizzite, and the Kadmonite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Rephaites, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Gergeshite, and the Yebusite. Right, that, that territory is going to now be um, given to Avram's offspring. Then we go into the whole story of Hagar. Okay, so this is a standalone episode. Are we missing part of the story? Possibly, right? Like this is like the night, you know, the demon where Sipora circumcises her son with a flint knife. It's kind of like, okay. You know, it's like clearly this is a story that people understood. So we get the kind of condensed version because everybody knows the story and they know what it's about. We don't get it explicated here. He, he has a conversation, looks at the stars, then he has goes into a an ema, a great dread that falls upon him because this darkness is falling on him and he's asleep. And then the sun comes up. Is he awake? Right. But, but there's a blackness. What's that? Right. But we see a smoking oven and a fiery torch and um, that crosses between the pieces. And as they cross, but as this, this fire crosses between the pieces, right? God says, we, the narrator says, God's cutting a covenant with Abram at this moment. But what we hear as the, the fire passes through, I give this land to your seed from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates and, and all the territories, right? That, that are covered. And that's the end of the scene. Isn't it kind of unsettling that once again, in the very beginning, it's being put in a land that belongs to where other people are, it's not empty place? Correct. Uh, <laughs> Correct. So the first thing I thought of when that came to my attention about connecting to today is that's always been the problem. That's always been the problem. We make We make it sound like this is the first time People have been displaced. We displaced the Native Americans. Like we, you know, this is as long as there's been human beings that fill most of the places that are habitable. Every time someone moves and settles, it means they either are integrated into the population or they displace the population. It's not new. It's not new. And it's not just us. It's not just in Israel. It's not just here, all over it's it's all over Africa. It's all over the entire history of the entire world. Read Homo sapiens by what's his chap Yuval Harari. Read that book. That's the only way you 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 get it. as soon as there's a famine somewhere or this mass migration happens and everybody kicks out everybody. That's the history of habitated human habitation, and I think we lose sight of that. We get so bogged down in the you know, Palestinians were there when we settled this time in 48. It just, and I want to remind us that there was an agreement. There was the Balfour Declaration. There was an agreement to divide the territory. Immediately, the Israelis signed and said, we'll take whatever we can get. And five Arab armies attacked. We forget this. And I'm not, I'm not saying anything about right or wrong. I'm saying those are the facts. Yeah. That's what happened. There was an agreement to share the land by Israel and the world community, or most of the world community, and um, and the Arab world said no, and tried to take the whole thing and kill all the Jews who were there, and that didn't happen. So it's always complicated, and it's this old that yes, there are already people there. Ironic that it's actually mentioned. I, I know, I know. It leapt off the page to me. Yeah. All right. So let's see. There was a particular teaching about this that I really liked, liked that that I resonated with, given where we are in this moment. This is Rabbi Joshua Gerstein, who comes to exactly this scene. Do any of these tribes still exist? No. And we shouldn't either. We shouldn't exist either. These are all ancient peoples that once you lose your land, and it's, this didn't happen. They didn't lose their land because the Israelites took over. We know that. Early Israel was mostly converted Canaanites. So, you know, this is a myth. But but they, 
but they did disappear. These people did disappear because once you're not sovereign on your land, what does it mean that you're Canaanite or Edomite, right? If you're not sovereign on that territory anymore, your culture, your language morphs into whoever's in charge next, right? And so we should have gone the same way in 70 AD CE. You know, when, it, when, we, when the temple was destroyed and we were exiled from Israel, no longer sovereign, we should have gone away as the Israelites, like the Edomites and the Jebusites. Why didn't we? Why didn't we go away as a culture? (laughs) (laughs) Sheldon, I think you just made my thought. I got to tell you, Sheldon, who walked into this room going, not sure this is going to be for me. Not sure Bible study is going to be for me. Just said, why didn't we go away? Torah. Did you say one of the tribes was called the Parasites? Parasites. Oh, parrot Parasites. Um, That's okay. So, so, so why why is that moving to me? Because that's that's the answer. Because the rabbis who had been exiled in 586 to Babylonia and stayed in Babylonia, stayed connected to these texts. They stayed connected to these ideas and ideals. They could have moved on, and they did. They took a lot of the Babylonian stuff. That's why Rosh Hashanah is in the fall. They took a lot from the Babylonians and incorporated it. But they stayed, the way they talked about new ideas was to read them back through these texts and these practices, the Jewish ones, they reconstructed Israelite teachings into ones that could speak to them. They took new ideas and had the chutzpah to say, that's what Torah actually meant. Because of that, there was a thriving community talking about these things using the Torah language of Hebrew and all of the things that we still know as terminology, like staka, right? Chesed, right? All, they, mitzvah. They still u- used that language to talk about what they were doing in Babylonia. And because of that, when we were exiled, there was a thriving Jewish community. It wasn't Israelite. It was Jewish. They didn't know that. They only knew from Israelites and sending their money to the temple. Once that was no longer an option, Judaism emerges. Because they kept connection to Torah. That's how we're here. So that means none of these other tribes had like a, a book or, or laws or rules that they had to live by. Correct. Once they were exiled, they, and look, most of the Israelites did too. Most of the Israelites, what is the word? Morphed. Assimilated into, morphed into whoever they they assimilated into the Roman culture, the Greek culture. They they wanted to be Greek. They wanted to be Roman. They did not want to be Israelite. They didn't want to be Jews. They wanted to be the dominant, privileged, ruling class, right? So so most of them assimilated. Um, some didn't, but the Parasites and the Adamites didn't have something that had already been flourishing in the diaspora that they could then use to keep themselves together as a group with a, with a cultural identity. And that's what we're doing now. And that's okay. what we're doing now, Sarah Moskowitz. Yeah. The wise matriarch says, that's what we're doing now. Exactly right. Yes. I'm confused about the timing of when they had the Torah to access back when Abraham was going through all of this. And and the Torah kept them together, but when did they have the Torah available to you? Avram didn't have Torah. No. He's a mythological figure. Yes. The Jewish people already had practices and texts and laws when the first temple was destroyed. Okay. Was it called Torah then? I... I don't know what they called it, but they had these stories. They had their, they had the Avram narrative. They had their organization. They had Genesis. 
They had those narratives. They had those stories. They had the Exodus their narrative. Lore. Their lore. They had that. They had holidays. They had, you know, they had the things that they had written that, that was written. And that some people want to say it's post-exilic. The Torah is post-exilic. That these things were written down after 586 BC. Some say it's very late, actually, that this is written down. But they had scrolls and texts that they studied. Was it this form? No. But they had things that were theirs that they studied that they could continue learning, right, and referencing after the destruction of the first temple. And a lot of it was oral. Yes. Until it's written down, a lot of it is oral. All right. So let's look at Gerstein. Why is my screen not enlarging? Are you all seeing that at home? Yeah, it's up there, right? All right. I've got it in the wrong format here. No. <laughs> Control plus. See me. Uh, increase the percentage. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Mehmet. Yeah, it's Mehmet. All right. Um, okay. So let's look at Gerstein. I, I know it's long, but like I think it's really it's really beautiful. There, and I, I checked to see when it was written because I thought maybe it was this year. Um, it wasn't. It was like eight years ago. There are several questions that arise from this text. First, why did God question God? Right? Like why? It says he trusts. We, we read and, and and he believed in God. So then, what is this questioning business? Right after it says he believed, Abram believed. Um, why believe in God's ability to deliver one miraculous promise, meaning offspring, but not the other? Meaning, how do I know I inherit the land? That my offspring will inherit the land. Secondly, how did the command take all these animals answer Abram's question? And finally, what's the deeper message? Right? That's what we care about. Like, what, how, how does this have anything to do with our own times? So, Rob Soloveitchik offers a fascinating insight into this text. And he says, Avram's not asking for how will I know, like, show me a sign, um, like, gathering knowledge, knowing. That's a Western understanding. Rather, knowing, like, um, Adam knew his wife Eve. So we know from mystical tradition and biblical Hebrew that yada, to know, is a very intimate term. It's experiential. It's very intimate. To know someone, it doesn't have to mean sex. It, it means to really grok. Is the only word I can think of for those of you who know Heinlein, Stranger in a Strange Land. To grok someone, to really know them or know something is to integrate it right into who we are. It's that kind of knowing, says Soloveitchik, that Avram is asking for from God. So therefore, it's not about expressing doubt in whether or not this would actualize. Rather, Avram is asking God, how will I love this land so much? How do you expect me to establish an eternal bond between myself and the land such that it will become a homestead passed on for all generations? So Avram's saying, I just got here. How can, how can I know that I and my offspring will feel attached to this place, right? It's not a theological one. It's a practical one. How will he know that Israel will be loved and cherished by uh, generations to come? So God answers by saying, Take these uh, animals, right? And and it's going to be a solemn ritual, a covenant between Abraham and God. In fact, they hold the key, says Soloveitchik, to how the children of Israel can form an everlasting bond and eternal connection to the land of Israel. According to Soloveitchik, the common factor uniting all of the animals in the above verse is that they represent the three classes from which Torah has designated korbanot, offerings, be brought forth. Okay, that's kind of interesting. All the animals that God calls for are ones that will be used in sacrifice. It's not random. So this is going to be a, a way that the people express a connection to the divine, like presumably forever. It doesn't last forever. Uh, right, we know that. But presumably for a really long time. So, okay, that makes some sense. Great. The answer, therefore, to Abraham's query is as follows. Oh, this is like... Deep commitment to the land will be based on sacrifice. You do not appreciate something if you do not have to fight for it, if you do not have to sacrifice in order to get it. The most distinctive feature of the Jewish people is its readiness to sacrifice. Mm -hmm. I There was a post from someone who guided us a lot, a couple of groups ago, and he has he had three kids. His son died in an accident 
and his surviving children he was sending into the war. And it was a picture of him in uniform. He's in his you know late 60s. And he said he's happy to be back in uniform because he's happy to be able to do something. And, and he talked about having his kids, his surviving kids sent off and their spouses serving. And he talked about this. He talked about, we don't have a choice, but I'm willing to sacrifice my children for this people to have a place where we're safe. And getting that text about what's happening on UCLA's campus and drove it home. That, and you know, I'm not hysteric about this stuff. I'm not. I believe we're safe here. I believe we're going to be safe here. I, but it, for the first time in my bones, it was, we, right, they're saying we have nowhere else to go. There's not an option. And he was willing, they're all willing to sacrifice their children for this. I'm not going to be called on to do that. 2,000 Haredi signed up for the IDF. 2,000 Haredi Jews signed up for the IDF. It is against everything they've been taught. Haredi means? All four of them. There's an awakening happening that this is an existential moment for Israel. So when I read this, I thought, this is exactly how everyone in Israel feels right now. Our family, the Kaller family, who allowed it, allowed, who were accepting of the fact that their son wanted to go back. An American boy, trained in the IDF, left here and went to fight. They were willing, they're willing to sacrifice their son for this land, for this place, for this project of the Jewish people, having a sovereignty somewhere. And to not be in exile and to return. That's what he's being promised. They will suffer mightily, but they will return. And they're talking about Egypt. But I can't help but read this text absolutely about, hopefully, God willing, like the moment we're in is we will return and we will be victorious in holding on to the land. Because that's all we have right now, right, is in this incredibly difficult, painful moment is, is hope that we're ready to sacrifice whatever it takes to come back and to hold it and to love it. Avram's asking according, I love, this is just such a beautiful teaching to me. Soloveitchik is saying, Avram's not asking, prove it to me. He's asking, how can it possibly be that my descendants will love a place they don't know? that I don't know. And what I hear in that is, will America love Israel enough to sacrifice what we need to sacrifice? And I mean, American Jews, you know, like, will we be willing, will we love it enough, the project enough to sacrifice what we need to, to, to have it stay a reality in our lifetime? That's, Avram's worried about that. Let us be worried. Not not worried. Let us be concerned about that. So let's go to how in any way is this an answer? Like, why did this speak to me, this teaching about from Gerstein, from Soloveitchik? How is this a, an answer that's in any way appropriate? Uh, okay. Rob Soloveitchik posits that this is also explains God's answer of you shall surely know that your seed will be strangers. And that it was through the subjugation of the Egyptian exile and every subsequent exile that followed, says Soloveitchik. Wherein, okay, so you shall surely know that your seed will be strangers, right? They're in a land not theirs. It was through the subjugation of the Egyptian exile, because that's what's being referenced here. They're going to be strangers in Egypt. And every subsequent exile that followed, because Soloveitchik is living close to our time wherein the constant yearning for redemption burned in the heart of every Jew. Meaning, three times a day we longed to be restored to the land of Israel. This is a second component that forever enables the Jewish people to truly appreciate and merit the land of Israel as their everlasting home. It's because we never stopped yearning. 
and cultivating in our children a yearning. And I mean our children collectively, right? As a people, we taught the next generation to yearn for Eretz Israel and a restoration of Eretz Israel as the Jewish sovereign, as Jewish sovereignty there. We could have just said, we love America, we're staying here, and we did. We stayed here. We didn't move back. Those of us in this room didn't move back. So it's not that we didn't love America, but we also cultivated a love for right Eretz Israel and a Jewish presence there. And I'm just asking you that yeah. I feel like at this moment in time, like we're uh, we always feel very secure and safe as Jews in America, which we are relatively speaking. But um, just like some of the things that have come out lately indicate how much we're still strangers and yes. we're in exile. Yeah, just like my husband met with two Jews yesterday who. Both of whom said that their children came home from school and asked them to remove the mezuzah from their doors because yes. they're afraid. Yes. They're being bullied at school because they're Jewish. Yes. And uh, their classmates are saying, we, we should kill all the Jews. And it's frightening, you know? It's terrifying. It, it just brings home to me that we're, we're still in exile. We're still we're strangers in a strange land. So right. not our, you know, it's, yes. it's our home, but it's not our home. Yes. Yes. All right. So what enables the Jewish people to truly appreciate merit, the land of Israel as their everlasting home is that we have cultivated a relationship to it, right? A connection to it. For 2,000 years, we did that, people. Soloveitchik knows that. 2,000 years. That's ridiculous to long for something and three times a day say you want it for 2,000 years. That's insane. It's insanely loyal and loving, and crazily hopeful. But what of the birds? As we know from the verses, the birds were not divided as the other animals were. And he took from it, and we get the, but the bird, he, he, but the birds he did not divide. Rav Soloveitchik explains that the bird who is able to soar high above and escape the earthly reality in which the other animals live represents the spirit of the Jewish people. At times during our long exile, hope seemed lost and redemption seemed far away. Yet the undefeatable spirit of the nation has always had the ability to rise high above and transcend whatever tragedies the Jewish people have endured throughout history. Even when all seemed bleak, the Jewish spirit was able to soar to the heavens. That's Soloveitchik. That explains Soloveitchik is why the birds were not divided, because the spirit of the Jewish people can never, never be broken. I wonder if, if, um, if it was who chased the bird, the vultures away, was not God, but was uh, Abraham. I think it says it's Abraham. Whether that shows the beginning of a commitment to the contract. Beautiful. Can I also say something? One of the things that I remember about Abraham is also... Speak up so that they can hear oh, you at home. One of the things that was notable about Abraham and why he was pleasing in the eyes of God was because he welcomed the stranger, which others did not. And maybe in some sense, it's, it's a way of modeling the behavior the whole world should have. Welcoming because that's such a dangerous thing to do. You don't know what a stranger has, you know, hidden or whatever. I mean, strangers can be dangerous. So it's hundred percent. The tradition hundred percent believes that is the model. Yeah. Yes, that everyone should be doing that. I always tell the bar mitzvah kids who get you know some of these portions, how are we doing? How do you think America's doing on welcoming the stranger? So that's right, because for them it goes right to immigration. They know what's happening. They may not know exactly, but they hear what's happening. You know, and so, right? So, yes, it is 100% supposed to be a model. The verses above are not only describing God's covenant with Avram, but in fact contain a, a pertinent message to each and every one of his descendants, meaning us. First and foremost, even in the darkest times, whether as a nation or as an individual, there is always hope. Through countless episodes in our history, we've seen that the Jewish spirit can never be broken. One need only hold tight to its wings, and with it, we can soar to the uppermost heights. 
Additionally, in order to fully realize our prayers and dreams of returning to inheriting the land of Israel, we must be willing to sacrifice for it. And I would say now it's not about returning. Obviously, it's about meriting, holding. Concludes Rabbi Soloveitchik, throughout the dark night of Galut, of exile, you will have only one dream, one vision, one aspiration, one hope to get back to Eretz Israel next year in Jerusalem. And after you return to Eretz Israel, I assure you that you will be deeply in love with the land. And I would add, and its people, because we're not Israelis. It will be an eternal love, not just a passing affair. As we've seen in our own times with the reestablishment of the modern state of Israel and the mass waves of Jewish immigrants, so this is you know, written before everything that's happening now, by strengthening the love of the land and the people in our hearts, may we merit to see the final redemption speedily and in our day. May we create the messianic era and may we create an Israel that is sovereign and safe and um, on and on and on and on. Um, I truly thought this was written this year. Like until I got to that last paragraph, I'm like, oh, right, it's constant, right? It's it's just a constant of of who we are in our history. But it spoke to me. This scene has never spoken to me. Um, but I never read Soloveitchik. Like Soloveitchik is not a source, an Orthodox ultra. I mean, it's an Orthodox rabbi. It's not a source that I go to, right? Necessarily very wise, very deep, but. There's not a lot of sources that bring him forward as a source, right? So, but it, it makes me think, you know, I need to, I need to check Soloveitchik um, more frequently. Um, but I feel like that, that this is a teaching for us at this moment, that we are going to be called on to sacrifice, not as much as Israelis, but we are, we are going to be called on to sacrifice and we are going to have to step up. And that means speaking up when we need to, you know, it means sending articles to other people. Um, Robin has been like listening voraciously to podcasts and sending me them. And I, when I have a moment, I'll, I will listen and we're going to pick a few that we're going to listen to and then discuss together as a way to just feed ourselves. I'm sending articles to this one and that one about their specific, like, oh my God, how can it be that? So I'm like, I just had the question. I was talking to a group of moms um, the other night uh, at, at a home because they're freaking out and 25 of them, you know, invited me to come speak. And like I said, my question was, how does this get turned on the Jews? Like, how, wh- how does the slaughter of 1400 Jews and the capture of 230 more, how does that get turned on us? And the answer I know everyone says is, well, it's already it's always been there. This just wakens it. I'm like, that makes no sense to me. Duh, it's always bad. I didn't I didn't say this to them. Um, I was very respectful. Um, but inside I'm like, duh, anti-Semitism's always been there and it's just looking for an excuse. I know that. That does not explain to me why Jews are slaughtered and anti-Semitism now has more. I don't understand this. I don't understand what what's the connection. So so I'm sent, you know, so I asked the question to my Hartman group and I got two articles like right away in response. So if they're writing, if the smart people are writing articles about it, it means they they need to explain it also. So I'm not such an idiot. It's just like there, and Amy, you should know that. And it, it's, it's, how is it an excuse? How is a slaughter of Jews an excuse for anti-Semitism to rear its ugly head? It should be the opposite. It should be that you better shut up because you know what just happened. You're going you're gonna to be politically corrected, canceled, if you say anything about the Jews right now. And it's the opposite. I, I don't understand. So So anyway, so... We need, and so I said this to the moms, and so so and they, they were like, after someone said, well, it's just anti-Semitism rearing its head, because now it has permission, which made no sense to me, um, I, you know, I'm going to send them all this article. That's what we have to do. We have to, where the questions are arising, where the doubts are arising, where the confusion is, where the pain is, we need to, we need to support each other. We need to sacrifice our time and focus and energy to do that. We need to sacrifice materially to support Israel and, and what she needs right now, we need to we need to sacrifice whatever it's going to take, including our children's discomfort. There's a part of me that's sacrificing my child's naivete by not pulling her home from UCLA. Like and saying, I think you need to just come home for a bit and like do your classes online. Because <laughs> they can do all their classes online now. But I, I, I'm going to sacrifice 
her sense of safety and her innocence. She'll speak up. And and that's a place they used to call it Juicy LA. Right. So the other thing is everybody's so conditioned all the what about ism. That's what allows this to take hold. And what about the Palestinians? You know, it, it, it's just everything in our world now is what about ism. So this just fits right into that. And it also fits into the anti-Semitic trope. They brought it on themselves. Exactly. Right. And um and one article I read that was very smart said, I mean, I thought it was smart, it made sense to me, is that what it is, is if you're pro-Palestinian and the underdog and allying with them, if that's your narrative as an anti-Semite or an anti-Zionist or whatever, Jews being slaughtered challenges that narrative, that they're the victims. That causes cognitive dissonance. We don't like cognitive dissonance. And so you have to make something Israel did even worse than that. Then you can keep your narrative and your worldview. Well, if they hadn't oppressed the Palestinians, if they hadn't expanded settlements, if they had made a peace agreement, this wouldn't have happened. So you have to make Israel do something worse than what they did to keep your worldview in order. And then your blood pressure comes down and everything's fine. That makes sense to me. Well, it's right. Um, anyway, um, the other thing, um, and Bert, feel free to cut this wherever you want. Um, but um, but the other thing Soloveitchik is saying is that, so that's one component, is being willing to sacrifice and do whatever it takes and keep that connection strong and alive. The other thing it takes is hope. Is saying, and you know me, I am not a Susie Cream Cheese about this. I am not an optimist. I do think I can stay a realist. For Jews, hope is realism. It's not optimism. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's a necessity. Like, it's the only way we've survived. It's not Pollyanna. For us, it's about we have survived before and we will survive again. We made it through 2,000 years of exile. We took back the land. We fought for it against five enemy countries and Israelis won. We will do it again. And that is what they're saying in Israel. We did it before and we will do it again. They are not gushrying. They are not chewing their fingernails. They are not sitting around twiddling their thumbs with worry. They are saying we did it before and we will do it again, whatever it takes. And again and again and again. We have no other option. Okay, so we have a lot of hands. All right, so first on the screen, was Helene speak and then Mehmet. Uh, okay, I um, I don't know if I can formulate my my question or my my statement um, clearly, but uh, I'm finding it very difficult to uh, change the narrative of so many people, including young Jews, who come back with the comment, "Well, look how the Gazans are being treated. You know, what did you expect?" Um, some of my friends went to see the um, the movie Killer of the Flower um, Moon about the Osage Indians, and they had a, a panel afterwards talking about the Israeli-Palestinian situation. I chose not to go for obvious reasons, I guess, because I was afraid how that was going to turn out. But I'm finding it very difficult, not only... Um, with my friends who are not Jewish and progressive, but also um, kids, you know, Jewish kids who come up with the, uh, the the comeback, well, look what's happened with the Palestinians and what's happened with the Gazans. And I guess I need a handout or something that I can read <laughs> to tick off some comments. Yeah. Or some, so some I, I will give you. Proof. I will give you. I will send all of you an article that I really liked. Robin, do you want to say something about where you're going to what we should send to people? Um, yeah, just get on the Hartman um, website podcast. There's about ten today. Um, I didn't know you didn't have uh, uh, your Wi-Fi last night. There's ten on today. They're very thoughtful, very brilliant people in Israel on the ground, and you'll understand more. But I want to say that across our college campuses, these kids 
have been taught by professors on the far left. And that's why we're seeing all of these protests at schools. And my school, UCLA, I wrote to them and I said, no more money, no more donations, no more time evaluating scholarship applications, nothing for what you've been teaching the children that Jewish kids are afraid on, the, on my old campus, nothing. And that's what we all have to do. Yeah. And you have to understand that it's coming from, look at what's going on at Stanford. I mean, there's, I could send you all a, a, an essay that was written by a brilliant Jewish woman, young woman, about what's going on there. You know, 60 years ago, we couldn't even get into Stanford. And now there's a lot of Jewish students, but they're all protesting. Yeah. And it's horrible. Yeah. And that's what's going on. The L.A. Times, the New York Times are so biased yeah. toward the Palestinians. If you look at their front pages every day, you'll see it. And we all read those like it's gospel, but it's not. Right. And there's other there's a free press started by Barry Weiss, who used to be an editor at the New York Times because she couldn't stand the bias anymore. And they have wonderful writers and wonderful insights. Learn from other sources. Um, and Helene, send me an email to remember to send to this group, the, um, or I'll post it through our social media and send to this group, um, the whole thing about the binary of Palestinians or Israelis, right? So first of all, you're buying into a, they're buying into a binary that only one party is right. One party is aggrieved. So that's first of all. So you don't have to know anything more than be able to say to somebody, it's a both and. It's not an either or. Of course, both are suffering, right? This is a horrible conflict, of course. But the article that I'll send you says, well, who rejected the, the three peace plans that included 95% of what they wanted with Jerusalem as an international city? Barack offered that, right? You know, so, so sometimes we need to just kind of have some facts under our Belt, not even to argue with somebody, but just for us don't, to, be, don't be able to say, this is this don't is not argue. an either or. Yes, the Palestinians are suffering because Hamas has no problem using them. Hamas has no problem having them live in poverty and stay a symbol of Israeli oppression. The Arab world is not funneling money into Gaza to help support them so that they have something they want to live for and not die for. They don't care about the Palestinians. So, you know what I mean? It's it, it, they're they're all everyone's suffering. It's not an either or. That's kind of that's always my basic whatever. But I don't argue because I get too upset. And they don't have an don't interest argue. in being convinced about what's actually happening. They do not want to give up their self righteous indignation on behalf of the underdog Palestinians. That commitment is a greater commitment for most of those folks on the far left than the commitment to actually understanding what's happening. Um, and that is a dangerous situation that we're in. This is what leads to fascism, right? And all that stuff is they're not really interested in the facts. They're interested in their, you know, cause. And this is what we talked about when Yehuda Kurtzer gave that whole lecture that I told you I cried in at Hartman, when he gave the lecture about the illiberalism of the liberal left. That's right. That they are liberal. There's an orthodoxy on the left. And you're canceled if you don't agree with it. And it breaks my heart that that's where we are. It breaks my liberal heart that liberalism has failed. Right now, I'm not saying forever, but right now, liberalism in, it, in its right now extreme in America on the left has failed. All right, Mehmet? Um, there's so much to say about this whole thing, but I just want to um, uh, say that the the conception of Israel is a very recent historical fact. If we look at Jewish history, so it's 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 only been like less than a hundred years, but uh, our history goes way back. Even before the conception of Israel, we were subject to so much torture and uh, oppression and violence and and all of that. Uh, Gentiles didn't need the the existence of Israel to blame us for anything they, you know, they found was foul. Um, I think we should really um, um, study history, Jewish history, 
And I'm not talking about the Holocaust only. So much has happened before the Holocaust. And we have to teach our children about Jewish history in detail. So they know it's it's not because of Israel or Israeli politics what is happening to us. These things happen to us all the time. So we have to maintain the sanity and the um, the integrity of the Jewish mind, not only in Israel, but also in the diaspora. That's what really um, counts for me nowadays. Amen, amen. Dana? So uh, in response to that, so when is the right time to teach our children? You know, the wonderful Torah stories. When is the right time? Because I have a you know, 11 year old middle schooler granddaughter who experienced something at her middle school now. And I mean, you know, it's time to tell her, but you know, time to tell her what the reality of anti-Semitism and, uh, uh, you know, Jew hating people, you know, you, we shelter our kids from it. Yeah. Now it's, you know, you go to college, it's in their face. So my question asked for Dermot's comment is when is the right time to start teaching them all that history of the constant hatred of the Jewish people? Right. So, well, first of all, we don't just got to dump that on them, right? That's a lot. That's a lot. So I, I think we need to follow their lead the same way we did when they were little, is to answer the questions they ask and use anything they say as an opening to gently start even introducing them to the concept of the fact that there's been anti-Semitism throughout history, right? But we have to kind of follow their lead and see what they're able to hold and what they're able to handle, right? We can't just, and I know you're not suggesting this, you're a teacher, you're a master teacher, I know that, but I'm saying the temptation is to like say, okay, here's anti-Semitism 101. First they did that, right? Then they, and it's like, we can't do that to them. So we have to figure out how do we, if she expresses something to follow up on that and, and see what she says in response. You know, we have to start gently and slowly. But my, my point introducing them to the fact that it's not new. Before they get to college, they need that 101 before they get to college. I know, I understand that. Right, but my kid is in college. I can't sign her up for anti-Semitism 101. And I'm not going to sit her down and give her that course, but right. But she's, she's, she's been around it. That's the other thing. Don't minimize what they've absorbed from being around, you know, Jewish people and Jewish community. Oh. Like my kid has absorbed something about, we've not always had it easy, right? This is not the first time. They have some awareness of the Holocaust. They have some awareness of prior, you know, discrimination and oppression. You know I mean? So, even sitting around the Haggadah, the Seder table, and talking about being slaves in Egypt. I mean, you know, they have some awareness, and it's about building, I think, on that awareness in ways that they can handle. Because we don't want to traumatize them, you know, but we don't want to shelter them so much anymore, necessarily, either. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org